What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Marshall Media Montage, episode 103. We're going to be talking about Anthony Hopkins, Instinct, H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon 1993, Crying Freeman, Breakage, two anime OVAs from the 90s, Hellraiser 2, and Scanner Darkly from 2006. I always thought Scanner Darkly was 90s, if like maybe late 90s, but apparently I, I believe it's 2006, if I'm not mistaken. But hey, here it is, uh, episode 103. Sorry, guys, I, uh, I was kind of on a hiatus because I was working, I was busy, I had things I had to do. Uh, as I've mentioned before, yes, I am a uh, snailer. I, uh, <laughs> oh, dumb, dumb joke. Makes me laugh, though. Uh, yes, I am a SpongeBob fanatic. Um, so I managed to watch before I left uh, Instinct, Anthony Hopkins, Cuba Gooding Jr. I will get into that momentarily. Necronomicon, I watched that, I believe, right before I left. And then um, the last two weeks while I was out to see, uh, you know, operating and so forth, I, uh, I watched Crying Freeman as well as Breakage. I did bring my Switch and my, uh, you know, cord to charge it and play it and so forth. And I even bought a new game, uh, Pikmin 1 and 2. Uh, I believe it's essentially just a uh, carbon copy of the original ones on a GameCube, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think it's an HD remaster or any, uh, you know, control, you know, game mechanics upgrade or downgrade or so forth. I think it's literally the same game. But I, I didn't play anything for two weeks. Uh, I guess it just kind of flew by. I didn't realize that you know, I'm at work and then I come down to my, uh, you know, where I sleep, my sleeping quarters. And I'm like, well, uh, I could either read or just watch a little bit of anime. And that's what I did. And then I also watched uh, Hellraiser 2, as I mentioned. Uh, and I actually watched Scanner Darkly last night um, with a good friend of mine, uh, <coughs> Kira, when I came uh, home last night. So uh, shout out to her. I had a good time uh, watching that with you. I've never seen it before until now. Can't believe it took me that long to watch it. But uh, that being said, uh, one, two three, four, well, actually, more like, I guess, three films, because Scanner Darkly is technically, I guess, sort of a cartoon. It's like lifelike meets cartoon. Actually, I take that back. I did watch Secret Nim as well. However, I have seen that before, so I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, Crying Freeman and Breakage are new anime uh, OVAs that I decided to watch, and I had a, I had a good time with those. So there it is. Uh, I was at work. As I've stated, I went on a hiatus. Here I am. I'm back now. Uh, for the time being, I have about a month off before I uh, have to go back out and go do business again. But uh, you guys know me. I'll fit in one or two a week if I can. Um, as I've stated, picked up Pikmin, and uh, this is what I watched. All right, more than I have anticipated this uh, intro being. I'm literally beating a dead horse here. So <laughs> welcome back to episode 103, guys. Let's go. All right, here we go. Before I get into uh, Instinct, since it is the Halloween season, I did manage to find one uh, little list here that I wanted to look at. Best werewolf films of all time. Obviously subjective, and I will take a look, and you guys know me. I will write my own subjective rating, and I will tell you what I think. The Howling, 81, of course. It deserves to be on this list. It's essentially softcore fucking porn uh, with werewolves. It's really what it is. The Howling, 81. It is Joe Dante's film. I believe that's the same guy who did uh, um, Missing in Action, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, he did with uh, Chuck Norris. Yep, yep. Three years later. Um, American Werewolf in London, of course. That's arguably probably my favorite one of all time. It's just, I don't know, man. There's something about it. It's just so quirky, goofy, just so much fun. I mean, The Howling was fun, too, in its own right. I don't think it gets probably enough credit, in my opinion, compared to American Werewolf in London. There's just something to be said about that transformation sequence, the way that the story is set up, all the little dream sequences, the little, like, weird, like, Nazi regime thing, the way that his friend keeps coming back and he's, like, decaying even more so. He goes to a porn theater. Like, there's just so much, 
I don't know, involved much more so in regards to like character development and a uh, story building com- to, to me compared to American or, uh, excuse me, uh, the howling. Uh, yeah. Uh, they're both, they're both great, but I'm definitely more partial to American Wolf in the London. And no matter what else is on this, li- I don't know. They better, I don't know. That's probably going to be my number one more than likely. Uh, the Wolfman, of course, it's a classic, you know, Lawrence Talbot's uh, story of a normal man turned into a monster. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. gives an outstanding performance for 1941. It, I mean, it is classic. Uh, you know, I have a t-shirt. I have, like, you know, a little pins and so forth. I mean, it's cool. Like, it is cool. It's just I don't, not necessarily that it's dated. There's just something to be said about the practical effects that I just thoroughly enjoy. Uh, Werewolves Within, I have never seen that. Oh, it's a uh, feature adaptation of the video game where werewolves attack. Eh, I thought we were looking at movies, so I'm going to give that one a pass. Uh, Ginger Snaps, I have yet to watch this one. Uh, I'm a little behind. I want to say I have it on a hard drive, just haven't watched it yet. And I know there's two of them, if I'm not mistaken. Just haven't gotten around to it yet. I will. Dog Soldiers, same thing, never heard of it. I don't recognize any... uh, particular uh, actors or actresses that one gets a pass um yeah what else we got here uh werewolf by night this is also new who's in this one i don't recognize anybody same thing oh it's a tv movie and eh, it's probably not very good oh disney marvel studios oh i can't wait i'm good thanks i'll pass underworld yeah it's fun underworld rise of the lichens we could be lichens yeah it's it was, I mean, it's more or less like if Blade went the, uh, you know, werewolf route. It's fun for what it is. It's not American Werewolf by any sense of the word, but it's still fun. Rise of the Lycans. I love how they spell, no, no, I'm I'm reading it backwards. Okay, so Rise is R-I-S-E and then Lycans is L-Y-C-A-N-S. Okay, oh yeah, as in a lycanthropy, that's correct. Okay, talking to myself here. Wolf, 1994. I don't know if I've seen that one. I wonder if Wolfen's going to make this list. I liked Wolfen. That was fun from the... Uh, 80s Van Helsing yeah I mean they did a good job uh, for what they were able to achieve in terms of uh, CGI in 2004 yeah Van Helsing's pretty fun I, I would probably personally put that above uh, Underworld in just my you know opinion of course so I have five out of whatever the hell they had like probably 10 or 15 uh, some of them I just didn't know and then some of them were video games and to me they got a pass I can probably already tell you uh, what do I have? I have five, so I will put probably Wolfman at five, Underworld at four, probably Van Helsing at three, Howling at two, and then American Werewolf and London at one. It's just, it is that good and will just always be that good, in my opinion, in terms of werewolf films. Uh, I mean, I've seen countless other ones, like I mentioned, uh, Wolfen, which didn't make this list, and, uh, you know, all the other Howlings within the, uh, chronology of those films, and they're just they're just fun. They're corny, whatever. Uh, the first one's definitely still the best one in terms of the howling. Uh, I think they finally picked back up at like the fourth and the fifth one. The second one and the third one, I'm like, what the hell was this? They're, they're like kangaroos in Australia or something. It doesn't make any sense. But uh, okay. All right. Moving on to instinct. Yeah, I get a sip of water here. When noted anthropologist, Dr. Ethan Powell, who left society to live in the jungle, a.k.a. Anthony Hopkins's character is imprisoned for murder. It's up to a young psychiatrist, Theo Calder, to get through to him. Theo is played by uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, Donald Sutherland is also in this. He's basically the head of, uh, I guess, like psychiatric doctors, if you will, trying to convince uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. not to give up on Anthony Hopkins' 
you know, I guess deranged character and try and utilize him to bring him back into society kind of thing. You know, uh, rehabilitate him more or less. Okay, here we go. Uh, Maura Tierney is in this. She plays uh, Lynn Powell. Um, she's very familiar, I can tell. Uh, John Elward plays Warden Kiefer. Yep, yeah, he is the warden in this. That's right. Um, who else is in this that I can recognize? Nobody else. Okay, all right. I love how they say, like, more like this is The Edge. The Edge, I talked about that one a couple episodes ago with um, Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins. That was a lot of fun, too. I, it, it looks like it came out around the same time, if not filmed literally at the same time, like one day this, then the next day that, and so forth. But, okay, taglines. One man's mind is another man's mystery. And that's, yeah, okay. Yeah, that works because clearly Anthony Hopkins is then able to manipulate Cuba Gooding Jr. into, like, you know, what do you see, like, what does he say? Um, they're literally like interrogating each other and Cuba doesn't realize it until he gets uh, essentially held down by Anthony Hopkins, who is a crazy prisoner. And he's like, you know, what do you control? And he's like, nothing. And he's like, there you go. And like, now you're learning. It was just interesting, the whole concept of how they flipped it on its uh, end, you know. But uh, trivially, after takes with Cuba Dean Jr., Sir Anthony Hopkins would routinely say, show me the money, in reference to Cuba's character in Jerry Maguire 96. That's pretty fucking funny. Uh, that's actually... <laughs> that's funny. Uh, the Winston Gorillas in were so authentic. Few people viewing the film ever realized that the animals were not real. One of the greatest compliments I got from a friend said Paul Mejias was when he said, I saw Instinct, which were the real gorillas, which were yours. That said it all. The combination of the art and technology that went into our gorillas' heads and suits, added Winston, the gorilla performances of the actors in those suits and the fact that they were shot in a natural environment resulted in some of the best gorilla work I've ever seen. Well, it fooled me. I had no idea there were people in suits because I personally thought they were real. So, well, well done. Uh, we had to go through a learning curve in the Congo, but with instinct, we nailed it. Yes, very much so. Uh, that was a solid piece of trivia because it, very much so. I, I thought it was real. I had no idea that they were humans in suits. Uh, the film features two Oscar winners, Hopkins and Gooding Jr., of course. Uh, Sir Sean Connery was originally offered the role of Dr. Ethan Powell. I could have seen him do that as well, but I also don't see him kind of flip-flopping and being uh, sort of a crazy person, if you will, because Anthony Hopkins was kind of crazy until he opens up and then you realize where he's coming from and Excuse me, I guess morally. Oh my gosh, sorry guys. Ugh. Um, no edits here. Anyway, uh, yeah, I definitely prefer probably Anthony Hopkins within this uh, caliber of character compared to uh, Sir Sean Connery. Gosh. Hopkins' wig in the opening scenes was actually made from cat hair mixed with minks. Interesting. I don't know why he didn't just grow out his hair and then just cut it, but okay. All right, that was the last piece of trivia on this. Let me see what else we got here. That was bizarre and interesting enough. Sure, why not? Okay, released June 4th, 1999, also known as Ishmael. What a title for a film. Oh, okay, whatever. Uh, Excuse me. Subway sandwich, nice. Uh, budget, $80 million. Gross worldwide, $34 million. Uh, so it clearly flopped. And let's take a look at the rating overall here. It has a 6.5 out of 34,000 reviews, but clearly, yeah, they lost $50 million on this shit. Holy crap. Well, it is a pretty long movie. It's a little over two hours. It doesn't need to be. They could have done it. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry, guys. They could have done it in an hour and a half, and it would have been perfectly fine, in my opinion. But Wiki doesn't really have that much to say either. So it is a 1999 American psychological thriller directed by John Turtletob, starring Hopkins, Cuba Dean Jr., as I've stated, Maratini, and Donald Sutherland. 
loosely inspired by the, uh, the novel, that's why, Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Okay, the more you know, because knowledge is power, G.I. Joe, all right. The film had the working title Ishmael in 2000. The film was nominated for and won Genesis Award in the category of the feature. Uh, this was the first film produced by Spyglass Entertainment. Oh, they're a very familiar, um, yeah, producing uh, company in regards to uh, films. I-, I had no idea this was their first. Fi- That's really cool. I- I'm glad that I got to be a part of that. I just found that out just now. Right on. Uh, produced in 1998, of course, because it usually takes about six months to a year, if not longer, depending on the film, to obviously film it, edit, produce it. Cast it, you know, light it, all that crap. Uh, began January 25th, ended August 7th, 1998. So that took him, what, eight months. Buena Vista Pictures, uh, the, uh, what is it, the subsidiary of Disney, if I'm not mistaken, handled North American distribution while Spyglass, Spyglass, what the fuck is that shit? Spyglass Entertainment, once again, Tyler can't speak English because he's tired, what else is new? But he's doing this for you guys. It's the price I pay. All right. Handled international sales. Distribution was pre-sold to Buena Vista International. Most territories. Film Loso Mundo, Portugal. Sure, I'm not even going to read these ones because I'm going to butcher it. Receptively, Rotten Tomatoes gave the film a, oh wow, a critic score of 26% based on 65 critics. Yeah, it is a convoluted and predictable plot. Overshadows the performances. Yeah, I, I can also agree. I mean, for what it was, I enjoyed it. But I wouldn't be like, oh my God, this deserves to be the greatest movie of, you know, let's just say uh, the 90s or even like top 10 for that matter. Or even top five. Like, I not even, let's just say top 1,000. Like, it, it was cool to watch, but no, it's, it's nothing to brag about. Metacritic gives the film a weighted average of 43 out of 100, uh, giving it mixed or average reviews. Yeah, I can get on board with that. James Berardinelli, yes, Berardinelli, yes, gave the film 2.5 out of 4, describing the film as having solid directing and good acting. Eh, it was, they're right, it was a little kind of wonky and all over the place, but what I was able to piece together, I was like, okay, I understand where they're coming from, but it was just, it was a little bit of a uh, bomb, if you will. Speaking of which, the film was a box office bomb, grossing only 34 off of an 80 million, as I've stated, budget. The film uh, themes uh, had animal rights, uh, I guess, involved with it. Yeah, of course, because the gorillas, but then they realized they were fake, as I'm reading. Continue. Okay. On the day of the premiere for this in uh, Orlando, Florida, Cuba Gooding Jr. added his handprints to a star outside of the Chinese theater at the MGM Studios at, <clears throat> at the Walt Disney World Park. That's cool. The Walk of This Fame is a replica of the famous Walk of Fame in Hollywood, California, because of course it is. All right. Moving on. Necronomicon. Book of the Dead, original title, Necronomicon, 1993, from the Masters of Terror comes a chilling tale of unspeakable evil, has a 5.8 out of 6.8 thousand. Uh, I'm glad that I finally downloaded this one and I watched it because I thought it was fucking awesome. I really, really enjoyed this one. And I thought Jeffrey Combs was in it. I was like, wait, is he in this? They, I don't know, must have masked him in some way, like certain angles where I'm like, is that him? And then I'm like, no, it's not him, but clearly it is. Okay. Lovecraft visualizes three stories in the Necronomicon, the drown, the cold, and whispers about bringing a dead and wife, a dead and wife, once again, can't speak English, about bringing a dead wife and child back to life, extending life and aliens, yeah, that, this, this was a wild fucking ride, it was like, Tales from the Dark Side meets like the Willies, meets, uh, you know, Creep Show, meets Tales from the Crypt 1972, not the, uh, films obviously in the 90s, but I mean, uh, meets the Twilight Zone movie, it was like an anthological just culmination of all that together and this was awesome highly highly worth uh for those of you that are horror enthusiasts it, it's well worth your time uh directed by christopher gone as well as shosuke kaneko and brian yuzna brian yuzna obviously doing a uh, society 
as well as um, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, if I'm not mistaken, as well as uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He uh, helped uh, produce that as well. But uh, Brian Usna, yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff, and he's directed and produced a lot of things. Anyway, top cast. Jeffrey Combs, as I mentioned, he played H.P. Lovecraft, the one who goes into the uh, library in the beginning of the church and so forth. I don't really want to give it away. Let me get a sip of water here. Oh, Brian Usna played the cabbie. Okay, all right. I had a feeling I, that was him. Anybody else that I recognize? Maria Ford, uh, Denise De, D. Lewis. Man, there's a lot of freaking... I knew David Warner was in it. Ah, oh, God, I love that guy. He plays a... Uh, he's like a doctor up in this attic, and he has to keep it cold. If it gets too hot, he starts to, like, melt, and he loses his... Uh, I guess essentially, like, his skin, because he's clearly over, like, 100 years old and so forth. And I don't really want to give it away, but, uh, yeah, it's... It's pretty cool. David Warner, um, obviously being the scientist from um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, the English actor, uh, play, uh, The Secret of the U's, um, as well as uh, he's in Waxwork. Uh, he did a lot of stuff in the 80s and 90s, but uh, yeah. Well, well worth your time. This one was fun. All these other ones, uh, they're advertising more like this. Dagon, I haven't finished that one. I've seen Castle Freak, I think, like three or four times, and each time I've tried to watch it, I fall asleep. There's something wrong with me. I need to try and rewatch that and make sure that I don't fall asleep. Uh, the Call of Cthulhu, the uh, original silent film. I would like to watch that as well as The Resurrected. These are all H.P. Uh, Lovecraftian-themed uh, type films. Okay, here we go. Tagline, to hell and back is what they have here. I'm sure that works. Why not? Trivially, let's take a look here. Ooh, Jeffrey Combs was hesitant about portraying a Lovecraft uh, on film. I mean, considering he did reanimate or what? Uh, do the math, maybe eight years prior? Uh, I don't look like Lovecraft. Sure, you don't. He commented, but makeup made him look like Lovecraft as best as they could. Agreed. So that's why, that's probably why I was confused because what did I say a couple minutes ago? I think they put makeup on him and I'm like, they did a good job at trying to mask him because I was like, no, that's not him. Clearly it is though. Anyway, continue. He also wasn't particularly fond of the direction they went with his rendition. There are shots where the makeup worn by Combs greatly resembles actor Bruce Campbell. I thought so as well. Right down to the scar on his chin. Yes, agreed. Director Shusuke Kaneko did not speak any English at the time, filming his segment with an all-American cast. Well, that's great sense of direction. It was clearly, I'm joking there. All right. At approximately the uh, 37 and a half minute mark during the cold, some violin synth chords are played as a part of the score. This tune is identical to the closing credits music of the TV show Dexter. Interesting. Uh, Daniel Licht composed both scores. Dexter was released 13 years after the Necronomicon. That's cool. So what, uh, 2006? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Melinda Clark was originally offered the role of Sarah. Okay, that's nothing really important. Anyway, here we go. This movie failed to get a domestic theatrical release. No wonder nobody really heard about it. The film was financed by a Japanese and French company. They released the film theatrically in their territories to recoup their investment. Then the rest of the territories were sold by a sales agent without any prior investment in the production. New Lime, which acquired distribution rights, decided that they were safer releasing direct-to-video with... Uh, rather than risking money on a theatrical marketing campaign. New Line Home Video released the film direct-to-video three years later. Yeah, I don't... I think this was, to me, just one of those, like, down-the-rabbit-hole uh, curiosity kind of things, like, Googled, you know, a movie similar to this or whatever, and then, like, this one popped up, or you go on IMDb and you type up a certain movie, and then it's like, oh, more like this, and this one popped up. Yeah, no wonder nobody really heard about it, because it clearly wasn't here in the States, you know, until three years later on Straight to VHS. That's a trip. Uh, there's, yeah, okay, all right. Let me take a look. What else, what other information I got here? Oh, boy. Um, July 29th, 1994. Oh, excuse me, I'm so sorry, guys. Came out in the UK. 
most countries of origin, France, Japan, and the U.S., as I've stated, also known as Cool Air. What the fuck kind of, what kind of title is that? Oh, my God. You might as well have just called it Cool Runnings 2, and then clearly it's about the Book of the Dead. What the fuck, Cool Air? I was in a really creepy film called uh, Necronomicon, but, you know, in other states they call it air conditioning, or uh, other provinces, or providences, other countries, you know, on other planets they call it uh, HVAC, the film, you know. What the fuck? Also known as Cool Air. Necronomicon. What the fuck is... Oh, my God. So ridiculous. Budget. $4 million. Uh, well, what they had... I mean, they had definitely achieved some weird, funky effects. The last fucking segment is so weird about, like, the aliens, like, eating you or sucking you alive or something to create more... I don't know. That shit's fucking weird. So cool, though. All right. Anyway. Oh, boy. What else we got here? Okay. Also called H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon Book of the Dead or To Hell and Back. 1993 French-American anthology horror film, as I've pretty much already stated. It would be kind of cool to have it on DVD. The DVD is the little weird uh, last alien segmented uh, cover that I was uh, talking about a minute ago. The film's ensemble cast includes Jeffrey Combs, Bruce Payne. Who else we got here? Uh, Ooh. The extensive special makeup and animatronic effects were actually supervised by Tom Savini. Hell yeah, bravo. As well as John Carl uh, Buckler. Also really cool. Christopher Nelson and Screaming Mad George. Well, that makes perfect sense because all four of those gentlemen are well known. They are their own Mount Rushmore of horror fucking fanatics. It's awesome. The three stories are based on three works by famed horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, The Jound, The Jound. Once again, can't fucking speak English. What is it, like your third one tonight? Uh, the Drowned has light similarities to aspects of the short story The Rats in the Walls. The Cold is based on the short story Cool Air, hence the title of the, uh, the alternate title of the film, I guess. Okay. And Whispers, based on the novella The Whispers in Darkness. Okay, all right. Well, I don't really want to give away the plots. I mean, it's, it's, it's well worth your time. I, I had fun with this one. Uh, Production-wise, Brian Usna was trying to get a new film project going using his business connections in Japan, decided three-store... Uh, Once again, can't speak English. There's your fourth one for the night. Japan decided a three-story anthology film with a creative team from America, Asia, and Europe, respectively would give the film the commercial viability it needed to secure financing. In developing a linking device for the film, Usna decided to base the film around the Necronomicon from the writings of Mr. Lovecraft. Uh, Howard uh, P., right? Yeah, Howard P. Lovecraft. I can't remember the middle. Uh, and it doesn't matter. While making the film more inspired by Lovecraft stories rather than a direct adaptation of them. Despite being completed in 93, the film sat on a shelf until it was released direct to video on October 29th, 1996. Ooh. Well, it's about to hit it. Uh, what is that? 27 years? Yeah. Right? Do the math? Yeah, it's about to hit his 27 year mark uh, tomorrow. That's pretty cool. I had no idea. That's just sheer coincidence. I, I keep getting lucky with these things. Uh, critical response. It was well-received upon its initial VHS release in the U.S., but substantially better in Europe and Asian markets because, sure, why not? The film won the award for the best special effects at the 1994 Fanta Festival. That's really cool. I could see that. Okay, that's really it on that. Um, take a quick break. I'm going to be talking about these two little anime OVAs for you real quick. Let me take a break. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm going to be talking about Crying Freeman, original title, Kuraingu Furiman. Yeah, yeah, it's about as close as I can get it. Okay, TV miniseries from 88 to 94 has a 6.9 out of only 1,100 uh, reviews, so 1.1,000. I use uh, AnimeSugi.2, as I've mentioned before, for uh, OVAs, um, usually for uh, 
TV series I use at AnimeTake.tv. But um, it has a TV uh, mature rating, an hour long each, uh, all six episodes. Yeah, all six episodes are about, yeah, 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and it's kind of more or less about like the Yakuza. Uh, here, let me let me explain a little bit about it to you. Okay. Imu Hinu, a 29-year-old virgin, uh, the uh, female in this, who later becomes, uh, uh, I can't, uh, I watch so much anime, it's hard to forget names, or it's easy to forget names, more or less. Uh, anyway, witnesses a mob hit and fears that the killer will now find her and kill her. His name was uh, originally Yo, as he called himself, and then he ended up becoming a uh, crying Freeman because whenever he kills somebody, he typically feels bad for having to kill them since he is an assassin and he ends up tearing up. And then it's, uh, Lo- uh, what is it, like Lord Tayaman or something like I think he, yeah, no, Lon Tayaman he changes his name to because he has to since he, uh, I don't, like I said, I don't really want really to give it away, but uh, I will explain a little bit of the, uh, story here anyway indeed he sets out to do so he is yo hinomura originally uh formerly known as a talented potter and artist who's been conscripted against his will to be the prime hitman of the 108 dragons a gang with the chinese mafia who are determined to push aside tokyo's local crime lords me i'll read a little bit more for you guys here it's pretty interesting he breaks into her house and she asks that he make love to her before he kills her since they're both that he also happens to be a virgin as well. She connects to his inner self and he becomes her protector pretty much throughout the entire series after that. And she has, uh, she picks up the Muramasa uh, sword, which is uh, formerly a uh, masculine sword and everybody believes that she's not going to be able to handle it. And uh, typically if you take it out of its sheath, it begins killing people and she's able to uh, control the, uh, so it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, I had a lot of fun with this one as well. Uh, now he must defend uh, her against the local crime gang who have connections with corrupt Tokyo police. Will Yo and Ibu make it out alive, and will the 108 dragons triumph? Uh, I don't want to tell you, but yeah, it, it was it was cool. I had a lot of fun with this one. Okay. I don't recognize anybody, whether they are uh, Japanese or English, in terms of uh, voice acting. Uh, usually when it comes to stuff like this, I always watch it uh, in Japanese, and I will just um, read it in English. Demon City Shinjuku, more like this, of course. I mentioned Kite before. Still haven't watched Fist of the North Star. You know, shout out to Austin because I know he likes that one. I haven't watched that one yet. Uh, Mezzo Forte is another one from around this time. That looks like something up my alley. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of fan service, I suppose. That's why. Anyway, taglines, lust, larceny, and loyalty. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much, yeah. The Yeah, there's robbery and there's definitely loyalty and there's also plenty of lust in these uh, old OVAs. And I... I guess call me a fucking weirdo. I like it like that. They just don't make stuff like this anymore. Trivially, based on a manga series by Kazuo Koike and Ryochi Ikigami, there are two English dubs, a Streamline Pictures dub from ADB Films, uh, episodes one through five dubbed by Streamline Pictures, and episode six was dubbed by ADB Films and Manga UK dub. That's uh, that's all I got. There's no, uh, There's nothing else really on this one, in terms of uh, trivia, that is, at least. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Details released February 4th, 1994 in uh, the U.S. country of origin, Japan. Of course, language is spoken Chinese, Russian, and Japanese. That is also true. I definitely remember hearing other dialects uh, spoken in the uh, series. Produced by Toei Animation. And that's really it. Like I said, it's about the Yakuza. There's a, like mafia in relation to uh, you know offing people, trying to protect people, trying to get out of... Uh, the assassin kind of club and so forth and you know create a new name for yourself and live elsewhere and uh it's i'd say it's worth your time i mean it's only six episodes are all about 45 minutes long and 
Yeah, I had a good time with it. Okay. Next uh, anime OVA that I watched, uh, Breakage from 1999. It's only 45 minutes. It's a video, and there's no rating on it, directed by Sueno uh, Tomonaga. And uh, I don't really recognize any any people. There's really not much on In other words, uh, the way that I viewed this one, it was kind of like, um, I guess, a predecessor to a Sword Art Online in regards to how they uh, you know sit in a computer and then they go into like a make-believe world Kind of like a, what was it, dot hack sign or whatever, or uh, you know, um, like Gurren Logon because they go into like these Gundams. Yeah, it's basically Gurren Logon meets like SOA is kind of how I viewed it. It's definitely early predecessor to that, and for what it is, it's a little, it's a little high schoolish. It's kind of corny and quirky, but and it goes by pretty quickly, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was fun. I mean, I don't think it's as good as you know Berserk Claymore or Rotsuka Doji, the ones that I watched before, and. Uh, at least I talked about Arotsuka Doji. I didn't talk about Berserk or Claymore, but I definitely have both of those, and I've watched them, and I like those as well. Um, details on Breakage, or Break Age, I believe is how they pronounce it here, but it's kind of like, I don't know, it's just easier to say Breakage, but whatever. Released September 25th, 1999, country of origin in Japan, of course, and I'm not surprised, but, you know, not being rude, just being honest. I thought it was funny. Okay, Break Age, yeah. Uh, really not much on it, like I said, other than... Gundam Wing meets like a Sword Art Online. I thought it was cool for what it was. It's definitely an early predecessor. It's a little dated, but it was just something that I saw in my uh, feed, and I was like, you know, I'll check that one out. And uh, for what it was, I enjoyed it. Okay. All right. Let's get into Hellbound Hellraiser 2. I'm probably going to uh, sift through this one I uh, pretty quickly. I mean, I liked it from what I saw. I will admit, though, the copy that I had about halfway through, the sound cut out. And it just would occasionally like go, it like just made this noise. But <coughs> from what I gather, it literally reminds me of like an extension of the first one. It seems like it would be something that I would like regardless. And from what I saw, I was like, wow, this is fucking awesome. I thought it was really cool. It reminded me very much, yeah, an extension of the first one. Let me get some water, sorry. Uh, came out 88, a year after the uh, first one, R. An hour and 37 minutes is a 6.4 out of 55,000 reviews, and rightly so. Christy is bought, brought back to an institution after the horrible events of Hellraiser 87 a year prior, where the occult obsessive head doctor resurrects Julia and unleashes the Cenobites and their demonic underworld. Directed by Tony Randall. Let's see what else. Written by Clive Barker, of course it is. Let's see what else this guy directed. Escape from New York, that's also really cool. And that's all I really recognize him from. So, all right, moving on. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, uh, starring Doug Bradley as uh, Pinhead. I mean, I'm not surprised. But uh, yeah, I mean, because this one, this one is literally like canon. It's canonized and it, it flows perfectly with the first one because I've started the third one. I tested it. The sound on it works fine, but it. I'll finish it later. I'll talk about it on another episode. It just, it didn't have the same kind of vibe, the same coloring, the same acting, the same. It just didn't feel as well-produced or made as how the first two Hellraisers are, in my opinion. But as I've stated, okay, Claire Higgins plays Juliet uh, once again, as she did before. Who else we got here? Oh, my gosh. I'm so, so sorry. Oh, moving on. Okay. All right, trivially, let's take a look here. Clive Barker had developed elaborate backstories from the Cenobites from the first film, though their origins were never explored. In this film, he wanted to make sure that, at the very least, the audience understood that the Cenobites were once human. And he does definitely explain that, uh, that their own voices 
or excuse me, own vices led to their becoming demons. This element was meant to underline the story of Frank Oliver Smith and Julia Claire Higgins and their corruption by lust, with the latter intended to become the ultimate villain of the series. Pinhead, however, proved much more popular with audiences. Yeah, he's probably the most well-known, of course, and thus became the center point in further sequels. Yes. <clears throat> An in-depth subplot detailing the origins of Pinhead, Doug Bradley, was scripted but deleted in uh, pre-production due to last-minute budget cuts. All that remains of this subplot is the film's prologue showing Captain Spencer opening the box and transforming into Pinhead. Pinhead, Captain Spencer's backstory, was later explored in Hellraiser 3. Yes, uh, from what I gather, I've only seen maybe a half hour of it or so, and it seems like they uh, try and explain it a little more so from what I've noticed. Anyway, Andrew Robinson refused to reprise his role as Larry Cotton, forcing hasty script rewrites. This partially uh, accounts for the muddled story structure of the final film. Yeah, I mean, the correct. The last, like, maybe 15, 20 minutes, I'm like, well, it's kind of, like, wonky, but the overall uh, aspect of the film I definitely enjoyed from what I can gather. Okay, Oliver Smith, who played skinless Frank in the original due uh, to his skinny frame, allowing the body makeup to be realistic, reprised his role along with two extra roles as browning the mental patient with delusional uh, paras parasitosis. Yeah. And as the skinless figure, uh, Kirsty sees in the hospital who writes, In blood, I am in hell. Help me. Yeah, that was pretty bizarre. The horn sound that is continually made by Leviathan is Morse code for God. Interesting. That's, wow. Okay, that's a trip. I don't think I knew that. Okay. What else we got here? December 23rd, 1988. Nothing says Christmas like Hellraiser 2. Yeah, uh, pretty much on my birth year. Fantastic. Good job, guys. Anyway. <laughs> Budget, 3 million pounds, apparently, and then it grossed uh, $12 million US, apparently. Okay, all right. Uh, it is a supernatural horror film directed by Tony Randall, starring Claire Higgins, Ashley Lawrence, Kenneth Graham, and Doug Bradley as Pinhead, as I've stated. Okay, Clara Barker wrote and directed the Hellraiser uh, first film, wrote the story of the second one, serving as the executive producer. An international co-production of the UK and the US, Hellraiser 2 screened at the Toronto Festival's <clears throat> on September 9th, 1988, and received mixed reviews upon its release. It grossed 12.1 at the box office, followed by Hell on Earth in 92, the third film, which it just has a completely different vibe. It's just, it's definitely not the same. Anyway, okay. The picture was due to have a much larger budget, but it decreased after the financial issues with New World Pictures uh, in terms of uh, production is concerned. Here we go. Nicholas Vince, who plays the Chatterer, uh, received a hook jaw to... Uh, while filming a scene involving his character being impaled on a swinging torture rack surrounded by the many hanging chains. He also requested his character have eyes to help his vision, which caused some discontent with fans. Oh, sorry. Ugh. Who derided the new design. A scene in which character receives his vision was removed from the final cut, causing some confusion at the introductory scene and Hellbound featuring him in his original eyeless guise. Yeah, that's, well. Uh, I think I did notice that, like little eye slits for him to see, but yeah, I mean, because obviously before he, he couldn't see at all. I get it. It's like a safety hazard kind of thing. Originally, there was going to be an extra scene during the ending where uh, Kirsty and Tiffany are running from the canard. The scene was planned so that during their escape, the duo run into the doctor and nurse. The doctor demands to know what they're doing. Kirsty brings, or excuse me, backs away in horror when they suddenly uh, turn into pinhead and female Cenobite before she and Tiffany continue running. The scene was filmed, but was ultimately dropped from the final cut for two reasons. One, because the filmmakers thought that having uh, actor Doug Bradley as a normal doctor would confuse the viewers. Agreed. And another was because the special effects for the scene turned out poorly. Agreed. 
so it was decided to discard it discard it altogether. However, a photographer who was on set took some photos of pinhead and female Cenobite dressed as surgeons, which were used for promotion of the film and were also used on some of the VHS and DVD covers of the film, confusing fans and starting rumors about an infamous deleted surgery scene. Some trailers do uh, show a few shots from this unfinished scene, as well as parts of another deleted scene with Chatterer stopping the elevator with his hand and jumping at Kirsty and Tiffany. The lost scene was eventually rediscovered on VHS work print and announced as an extra for Arrow's uh, video Blu-ray release of the first three films in the series. That's pretty cool. You know, all this uh, rummaging and rumors, and they're like, yep, it turns out to be, in fact, real. Uh, Shakespearean actor Kenneth Cranham, who plays Kennard, claimed his involvement was due to his grandson pestering him to take up the offer, being a fan of the original. <laughs> That's interesting. Oliver Smith, who played Skinless Frank in the original due to his skinny frame, allowing the body makeup to be realistic, reprised his role along with two extra roles as Browning the mental patient with delusional parasitosis and the skinless figure Kirsty sees in the hospital who writes, I am in hell. Oh, I already read that. Sorry, I'm just tired, guys. Moving on. Okay, critical response. Rotten Tomatoes, 50% out of 30 critics out of, uh, yes, 30 critics reviews, average of a 5.3 uh, rating. Website's consensus reads, it retains the twisted visual thrill of its predecessor, although seams in the plot are already starting to show. Uh, yeah, there's some aspects where I'm like, okay, sure, why not, whatever. You kind of just try to suspend disbelief and so forth. But I enjoyed one and two for sure. One definitely more so, but two still fun. Ah, boy. Metacritic, using a weighted average, assigning the film score 41 out of 100, mix or average reviews. I'm not surprised. Ooh, let's see what Roger Ebert had to say. Probably some bullshit. Describing it as some kind of avant-garde film strip in which there is no beginning, no middle, and no end, but simply a series of gruesome images that can be watched in any order. <laughs> I mean, you're certainly entitled to how you feel. I mean, you, you don't, not everything has to be a Juilliard-type you know, film there, Mr. Ebert, but whatever, it's... Whatever, man. Feel how you want to feel. I still find it funny, and apparently, I, I don't know how many times. I've already lost how many times I couldn't speak and how many times I've yawned. Uh, you know, insert number here. Anyway, in a more positive review, Chris Willem of the LA Times called it a faster and campier than its predecessor. It was quicker. Uh, that's because, well, I mean, they didn't need to set up a plot or any sense of explanation from the first one because they have already anticipated that you've seen the first one, so therefore they were able to make it faster just makes more sense uh, more of an action adventure picture this time around uh, if still an exceptionally grisly one agreed all right last film here we go scanner darkly 2006 rated r hour 40 minutes as a seven out of 116,000 reviews i remember seeing this at the uh i think it was the blockbuster down the street from me or like hollywood video all the time i just i never picked it up as a kid i just was or uh shit no i was this was i was uh, i was like 17 1718 give or take like when this came out and uh, i remember seeing it and i just was like no 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 but last night you know i hung out with um, a good friend of mine and just uh you know spent some time with her and uh we watched scanner darkly and it was like spun meets uh fear and loathing meets some sort of like animatrix style like animation it was just something revolutionary and i don't think it can ever be done again and i think more people need to be you know informed of and watch this one uh, starring Keanu Reeves, Robert Downey Jr., Woody Harrelson, and Winona Ryder. Uh, the tagline on the cover art here is, um, everything is not going to be okay. Yes, uh, that works very much so in its favor. An undercover cop is not too distant, in the not-too-distant future, uh, pff, mystery science theater, right? <laughs> Becomes involved with a dangerous new drug and begins to lose his own identity as a result. Uh, 
directed by Richard Linklater. Let's see what else he did here. It looks familiar. Uh, I think I've seen Boyhood. I don't really remember that. And the other ones I don't recognize. So, all right, Scanner Darkly it is. That was your best work. All right, in my opinion, of course. Okay. Who else is in this film that I can recognize? Uh, sure, no one. All right, moving on. <laughs> Sorry for wasting your guys' time. Okay, trivially, Robert Downey, Jr., uh, Robert Downey Jr. wrote most of his lines down on post-it notes and scattered them around the set so he could read off of them while filming a scene. <coughs> Excuse me. The rotoscoping team simply animated over the notes to remove them from the film during post-production. According to writer and director Richard Linklater, uh, filming was completed in 23 days. Wow. The animation took 18 months. Yes, I, uh, I can agree with that and get on board with that time frame. Yeah, because it's a lot. When Bob Arctor, Keanu Reeves' character, sits on the stage waiting to give his speech to the Brown Bear Lodge, one of the images his scramble suit displays is Philip K. Dick. This is a clever reference to the novelist in which the scramble suit is said to show the likeness of its creator once in every several million permutations. Well, I guess only nerd nerds would understand that. Oh, that's him, but whatever. Philip K. Dick's daughter gave writer and director Richard Linklater their father's personal copy of the novel A Scanner Darkly when he completed this film. At around 55 minutes, when Charles Freck, Rory Cochran's character, goes to the liquor store to buy wine, one of the brand names being advertised is St. Ubik. This is a reference to Philip K. Dick's novel Ubik, or Ubik, or however you want to pronounce it. That's pretty cool. Okay, so there's a lot of little homages for those of you that are nerds and so forth out there. Uh, okay, let's take a look here. Released July 28th, 2006, Country of Origin, U.S., official... I just caught myself, sorry. I didn't... I, I ain't sorry, man. It's my show. I can talk how I want, right? Anyway, and you guys like to listen to it, apparently. Uh, that being said, filmed in Austin, Texas, USA. You 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 couldn't tell. I mean, it's an animated film, but I mean, yeah, sure as hell, it looked like I was in Texas, Bobby. <laughs> it did, fucking stupid. Filmed in Texas, even though they clearly go like down to San Diego, and then they argue about you know, uh, like what was it, the gas line being cut or the brakes like not working on their way down the five south. They were talking about going to San Francisco, but clearly filmed in Austin, Texas, because that makes sense. Whatever, sure, why not? Budget eight point seven million, grossed seven point six. I'm surprised it didn't do as well as it did. I don't know. Maybe people just got burnt out on this uh, type of storytelling, perhaps. Maybe not necessarily the animation, because the animation to me is it's still incredible. It's seventeen years ago, and I feel like it's still ahead of its time. But that's that's just me. Okay, Wikipedia. What do we got here? <coughs> A science fiction novel uh, by American writer Philip K. Dick, as I mentioned earlier. <laughs> published in 1977 the semi-autobiographical story is set in dystopian orange county california and then as i've stated once again directed in austin texas whatever and then future of june of 94 and it includes an extensive portrayal of drug culture and drug use both recreational and abusive the novel is one of dick's best known works and served as the basis for this film of the same name directed by richard linklater uh i'm gonna have to pick this book up man it just sounds interesting uh okay film the rotoscope film a scanner darkly was authorized by dick's estate released in july 2006 and starring keanu reeves uh, we already know okay the film was direct oh, i already know audiobook apparently an unabridged audiobook version was read by paul giamatti okay that's pretty cool released in 2006 by random house audio to coincide with the release of the film's adaptation it runs approximately wow it runs approximately nine and a half hours over eight compact discs 
The version is a tie-in using the film's poster as a cover art. Wow. Well, the cover art for the actual novel itself is definitely different. Uh, the most brilliant sci-fi man on any planet, Rolling Stone magazine, according to what they have to say. But then again, that's also what years after Isaac Asimov, I suppose. I mean, to me, and then again, it's obviously it's all subjective. That was just, it's like Richard Matheson and Isaac Asimov and, uh, I think well maybe like Frank Herbert you know maybe Timothy Zahn and Kevin J Anderson anyway some of the ones I'm mentioning uh, obviously because I, I haven't read Philip K Dick's uh, Scanner Darkly but the other ones I mentioned are definitely solid authors and well worth your time but there you have it episode 103 is complete uh, Instinct Necronomicon Crying Freeman and Breakage or Break Age however you want to pronounce it Hellraiser two and Scanner Darkly I didn't really watch too much guys I'm sorry I just I was busy working and like I said I brought out games to play and I just I didn't play anything. I wanted to. I looked at it like every day. I just, I was like, eh, I mean, it's late. I got to get up early anyways. I'm just going to watch maybe half hour to an hour of an anime and go to bed. And that's what I did. But uh, there you have it. Episode 103. Thank you guys for so much uh, for sticking around this entire time. I apologize if I'm sorry. I apologize if I'm sorry because that makes perfect fucking sense. I apologize if I'm tired. Clearly I'm tired and I can't speak English. I'm losing my voice. I need more water. <laughs> I need an adult. <laughs> oh man just having fun that's what you got to do man like i said it's the price i pay to keep you guys entertained and you know it makes me happy doing this as well i'm always down to have guests on my show talk about music movies toys video games anime and whatever just all the stuff that we love to you know be involved with in our lives you know but uh thanks for all the support you guys uh the entire 103 episodes that i've gone through with you guys borderline coming up on my uh, year anniversary that i've been doing this can't believe that but uh, all right, enjoy the rest of your night and day, wherever the hell you guys are. Happy Halloween if I don't do one before then. All right, guys, take care. Thank you.